Radio Drone. Brad, does that sound just bring you right back to the 1980s? Yeah, I gotta go masturbate now. Well, okay, I didn't think it would do that to you, but okay. <laughs> but hey, if you're looking for something to masturbate with, you can always go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME to get three free DVDs, 50% off of a single item, a free mystery gift, and free U.S. shipping. Even if you're not into the Canon logo, you could still use the promo code DROME. Did you even know you were setting me up for that, or was that just an offhanded comment off the top? I always make offhanded masturbation jokes. They're very easy to do offhand. <laughs> ah! How about you, Jowski? Uh, everyone's calling you the deadpan of the show, so do you have a deadpan response? No. No, I, I guess I don't. <laughs> you can hear Alex is here. Now, obviously, with, with, with the canon sound there, we're going to be talking about canon. We're going to be talking about the history and the films. Brad and I grew up with these, and so did Alex, but he didn't even know it. And I have a feeling a lot of you are going to be under that same boat. Alex was like, I, I don't really know a lot of canon films. Then he looks at the, all the movies they released, and he's like, okay, I did watch a lot of canon films. They did a lot more than I thought. I thought they were just, like, really obscure low-budget movies, except with the off, you know, random Masters of the Universe or something. But no, they did, like something like 50 films a year of course they had stuff that i'd seen so brad when you think of canon films describe to the audience your experience with canon my experience with canon uh very much watching like very late night action movies that hbo would show cinemax would show but i'm not talking about like you know andy sedaris action or something like that I i'm not talking about that or like <laughs> Hard to Die, starring Shannon Tweed, you know, not not like that. Stuff that actually was mostly released theatrically, but gained some popularity on video and a lot of late-night viewings on HBO and Cinemax. That was primarily how I saw a bunch of them. And what I particularly enjoyed from the ones that I grew up with was that you had... They were, there, there was a fair level of grit, sleaze a level of violence to a lot of them and at the same time many of them they were they were big they were big dumb fun but they didn't cater to whereas a movie nowadays when they do big dumb fun and they cater to a very 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 young audience so they cut down on a lot of the grit the sleaze and stuff like that that some canon films had the canon film said yeah we're going to make some dumb fun but we're going to make it very, very adult-oriented because, you know, adults like to have fun, too. So we're going to make some big beefcake action movies, some gritty cop flicks, and they're going to be fun. We're going to cater to an adult audience. And, you know, for the most part, we're not going to treat our audience like, like they're a bunch of dumbasses because you can make dumb fun without treating your audience stupid. You know, they just simply want to have fun with a kind of sleazy, violent movie. That's very much my experience in growing up watching the the canon films well and canon had no i'm boiling this down but their philosophy basically was 
B movies on A budgets. They they saw movies yeah. like they they saw like movies like The Exterminator, low budget, released to maybe only 20, 30 theaters at a time, and it was bicycled around the country. And uh-huh. they said that maybe cost a million dollars. We can make a movie like that for twenty million dollars with huge production values and release it nationwide. The audience would love it. And unfortunately, I think that idea was a little before its time because audiences didn't love that. For whatever reason, the B-movies on A-budgets thing, I think, should have worked in the 80s, and it didn't. Their intended audience certainly got a kick out of them. But I don't think your average mom going to the multiplex was really going, Death Death Wish 4, that's for me. She was looking more for a Warner Brothers type movie than she was a canon. No, no. Yeah, of course, but the movie's not made for somebody like that. I think that the, the intended audi- I think that the intended audience for those movies, for something like The Exterminator or uh, you know, the, the 1980s Charles Bronson movies, I think that the intended audience for those still really got a kick out of them. I mean, I know that I certainly did, and I know a lot of other people who kind of grew up with them too, and for those kind of canon action movies, and I'm primarily talking about the action movies here, not so much some of the comedies, but I, even back then, I, I knew plenty of people, the intended audience, who who really, really dug them. And no, of, cor- of course, like, a mom going to the multiplex and stuff like that isn't going to like it, but the movie's not really intended for that person. I mean, even today, uh, uh, you know, some someone from a nanny state at a multiplex going there to just watch, you know, whatever, still, even to this day, probably isn't going to really go for some sleazy kind of movie that's playing nowadays but the audience the audience that i think that those movies were made for still liked it back then i don't think it was a situation that no one liked it upon release and then years later it's finally found an audience i i don't think that to the extent of maybe some other cult classics from the 80s but see i think this is where they miscalculated things yes i agree with you the exter- the you know movies like exterminator and that did hit their, you know, like the their intended audience, but they were making yeah. these things for twenty times the budget of that and expecting a mainstream acceptance, which they didn't get. Which I think that's where they oh. they misjudged the audience. That okay, Exterminator's doing really good in these little mm-hmm. theaters. It'll do even better on a bigger budget released wide. And they severely miscalculated, I think. So this bigger budget that you're talking about is a bigger budget that was put forth towards advertising. No, towards the movie, because the way that they kind of went into making, let's say a non-special effects film, just like a Death Wish sequel or something, that it's like printing money. We give a million dollars to Bronson, we put 10 million into the production, and we make 12 million opening weekend, everything else after that is gravy. And they did that multiple times and found, we only made three or four million opening weekend, ah crap, this didn't work. Maybe, maybe that, the next one will, and they kept trying it, going, damn it, this will work, and it didn't. The Exterminator didn't do well. I thought that did kind of well. Well, Exterminator wasn't a canon film. I'm just using that as an example of, yeah, that's what they cited as that there's an audience for this wider. They didn't make Exterminator. Exterminator, Exterminator 2 was canon. Yeah, Exterminator was, 2 okay. was canon. Okay, yeah, I, I knew at least one. But, but sometimes, like, I mean, they did. Didn't they also do Missing in Action? I mean, that was a big hit. They did did all the Missing in Action. They basically, and part of their idea was also exclusivity. Pretty much if Charles Bronson or Chuck Norris made a movie in the 80s, 
it was Cannon. for Canon because they had an exclusivity contract. I mean, just looking at yep. the list, Bronson made for them just between 82 and 89, Death Wish 2, mm-hmm. 3, 4, 5, 10 to Midnight, Murphy's Law, Assassination, Messenger of Death, and Kinjiti Forbidden Subjects. Chuck Norris made Missing in Action 1, 2, 3, Invasion USA, Delta Force, Delta Force 2, Firewalker, Hero and the Terror, The Hitman, and Hellbound. Mm-hmm. So pretty much they owned those two actors. So any Chuck Norris yeah. or Charles Bronson movie in the 80s, it was canon. Most of the 80s canon films I saw, I saw on TV. But with regards to what Brad was saying about the intended, eh, the intended audience, I was definitely a part of that audience. And even in the 80s, like I remember seeing the trailer for Death Wish 4 on TV and going, I really want to watch that, but... I was eight. No way my parents were going to let me watch it. <laughs> Isn't that the one where he breaks that guy's penis, or is that in five? I don't know, but they weren't. Put, they didn't put that in the trailer. <laughs> and, <laughs> one of those, he reaches into a guy's pants and snaps his penis off. I just can't remember which one of the movies that was. Can't watch that, so instead, here's Masters of the Universe. Masters of the Universe was actually the death knell of the company, but we, yeah. we'll, get to that. we'll get to that. That's a little down the line. They also had a couple other interesting ideas. We will give big movie stars who would not normally, I mean, you were never going to see Stallone normally doing a canon film, but they gave him an exclusivity deal for three films, which only two of which got made because then the financial issues happened, and they gave him complete creative control. Somehow he thought that would result in an arm wrestling movie of over the top. I don't understand that. But, (laughs) but, But Cobra, you know, he had complete creative control over that as well. And you even saw with Superman 4, Christopher Reeve was done with that franchise after 3. And they said, we'll give you control over it. And he's like, you know what? Doesn't sound like a bad idea. They gave Toby Hooper complete creative control over his three-picture deal. Mm -hmm. I thought all three films were really good, but they all flopped. They had that idea. Warner Brothers, Paramount, Universal, they're not going to give Stallone complete creative control, let alone someone like Toby Hooper. Canon? As long as you stay with us exclusively, you can do whatever you want, dude. Sure, yeah, I, and I respect that, man. So basically, it's like an 80s B-movie version of New Hollywood. It kind of was, really, except the movies weren't nearly as groundbreaking as New Hollywood. But some of them a lot more fun. <laughs> oh, and, a lot more fun, and, yes. There's no doubt about shorter. that. And shorter. Uh, there's that, too. There is that, too. So just a, a little bit of history quick. Galan and Globus are two Israeli immigrants who ended up coming to America and buying Canon, which was already an established company that had released you know, critically acclaimed hits like Joe and movies like that, but they were floundering. So they, they bought them for 50 cents a share and they cleaned up and they immediately instituted their new policy of the B movies on A budgets kind of thing. Within 10 years, they made 125 films. Just think about that compared Uh to something that even something like Warner Brothers would put out. That's amazing. In 1986 alone, they made 43 films. That's amazing, man. How much? Because you were mentioning earlier about not many of them really bringing in all that much in profit, but how was it that a lot of. What was the ratio to movies that did bring in a profit versus ones that didn't? And how how were they able to continue to make movies like that, like that many movies in the year 1986? 
it, it was a combination of things. Now, when you say profit, are you just talking theatrical or video as well? Because they they were one of the early adopters of video. You got to remember the big boys at this point were still shunning home video because they thought it would hurt their TV sales. Full Moon and or Empire at the time and Troma yeah. were eating mm-hmm. up home video. They made a deal with MGM mm-hmm. to grab home video, so all their movies made profits. Even if they failed theatrically. Even if the, even if they failed theatrically, yeah, because yeah. a lot of, because when you look at yeah because when you look at a lot of movies that Canon put out, it, the, some of them the first thing that comes to your head is like, oh man, that was a freaking staple on late night television, or you know that was always checked out at at the video store. Right, and, and then you had like you just said, late night television where you saw a lot of these. They definitely made a profit on the movies, even if it flopped theatrically. But the big thing is, and this came out years later, there seemed to have been some financial malfeasance involved in the company. Basically, the company was built on worthless paper. Remember the junk bonds of yeah. the 80s, Brad? It was yeah, basically yeah. built on those. And then some other financial malfeasance of lying to international distributors. Like, obviously, Chuck Norris, huge in Europe. So yeah. what they would do is they would pre-sell the movie, which is kind of brilliant, actually. Okay, we can make this movie. We've already made ten million dollars in pre-sales, and we're we've only got the movie budgeted at eight million dollars. We're already two million dollars in profit before we even have a script. But they would sell like, oh, this is the movie where, yeah, we're gonna get Chuck Norris fighting vampires. Yeah, yeah, and that's what mm-hmm. they would get their money for. And then when the film failed to deliver that, the international distributors were a little pissed off. Yeah. So they were basically promising things that they were not delivering, and then they would move money around. Like, say, an international distributor would give them a million-dollar presale on a Chuck Norris movie. Well, they would take that million-dollar presale and put that into the new Bronson film. So they were always one flop away from going out of business. They did some things, too, that, that like, was kind of genius, at least in the sense that I've never even heard of this happening before. Like, how Missing in Action 2 was originally the first movie. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But yeah. What was originally the second movie was a lot better, so they released that as the first movie, and then here's here's the first movie, but it's a prequel. I think that's probably one of the earliest prequels I remember seeing as a kid. He's coming to KTVU. Chuck Norris in three of his greatest hits, starting Wednesday, May 13th. He wants our prisoners, and he wants them now. Damn right. They're missing in action, but not for long. Then, Thursday, May 14th, same fist, different movie. Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee in a fight to the death. Get him! Return of the Dragon. They're fast. Mamma mia! They're furious. And it's going to be lights out for somebody. Friday, May 15th, this night with Chuck will be your last. Somebody must want you real bad. If you miss it, he'll forgive you. you got to be kidding. Chuck Norris in his greatest hits, coming Wednesday, May 13th to Channel 2. Your favorite critic, Roger Ebert, had a quote about canon in 1987 that sums up kind of what you were just talking about Uh quoting roger ebert here no other production organization in the world today certainly not any of the seven hollywood majors has taken more chances with serious marginal films than canon has 
and he's absolutely right. They took chances like you would not believe. Who the hell, nowadays, you'd never see a Death Wish movie released nationwide, would you? That would be direct-to-video. A sequel? Yeah. Something like, yeah. Uh, when you get into the later, when you get into the later Death Wish sequels, most certainly. And especially when you get into some of the less mainstream canon movies, something like Dangerously Close or The Barbarians or a movie like that. Or you even know. the American Ninja Flex. Oh, yeah. Again, especially when you get into the sequels. Yeah, you'd be hard pressed to find something like that that's theatrical nowadays. And even if it were, it wouldn't be as rough. It wouldn't be as dark. It, 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 odds are that most certainly would not be released with an R rating like a lot of the canon movies were. Well, and then the canon films also, canon had another unique idea that you don't see a specific company doing anymore. And that's we're going to revive, even if it's not a franchise at this point, dead franchises. They're like, hey, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is out there. Mm-hmm. Why don't we make a sequel? Yeah. Hey, Death Wish is out there. Let's make a sequel. Hey, uh-huh. Warner Brothers is done with the Superman movies. Let's make the sequel. They basically bought up, even Exterminator, they basically bought up dead franchises and said, we can make sequels to these. Yeah, they were. And That's they were, brilliant. Yeah, and, and they were years after the uh, the original films had been released. Oh, Death Wish Two came out in 1982. The first film was 74. Yeah. Uh huh. So, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two. What was what was Part Two? 1986. 86. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, part One. 1974 or late 80s, early 90s. If you see Texas Chainsaw. <laughs> <laughs> we're not going into that again, Brad. No, no, no. <laughs> Uh, we're not doing that. And uh, and they even tried, they even got their, their hands dirty in the slasher genre with like New Year's Evil, Schizo, mm-hmm. movies like that. They brought in the, the Italian Contamination, a.k.a. Alien Contamination over here. Yeah, the Hercules movie too. Oh, the, the Hercules ones. Those ones that are much more, I think those are much more science fiction than they are fantasy. <laughs> I mean, oh, you've got Hercules so fighting giant stop motion robots. It's brilliant. And you know what's respectable, too, uh, to go back to Death Wish and Chainsaw Massacre, what's really respectable, too, is that this is something you that I, I'd be surprised if it would happen nowadays. But then, okay, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 released several years after the first one. Death Wish 2 released, again, several years after the first one. But same director behind both of them. Sa- same director of Death Wish 2 made Death same Wish stars, 1. Same stars. Yeah, same Crew. Exactly, exactly. Uh, uh, it, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, Toby Hooper, behind behind the second one, also behind the first one. Some people have said that one of the things that doomed them was their exclusivity contracts. Like mm-hmm. with Toby Hooper, they had a three-picture deal for Texas Chainsaw 2, Life Force, and Invaders from Mars. And all three of those flopped hard at the box office. And Texas Chainsaw even hit them harder by the fact that it was unrated. Because at that point, you couldn't sell an unrated movie in the newspapers or anything. So they, mm. they, they that film basically just, I, I think the way he put it was that film wasn't wasn't released, it escaped. Okay. Huh. Because, you know, they, they didn't even want to release that after they figured no amount of cuts is going to get this to an R. So we kind of written ourselves into a corner here. And in the case of Death Wish 2, you had a zero star review by Roger Ebert. <laughs> that doesn't help either. But but did the, did those do well on video, though? Yes, 
and yeah. on cable. Th those mm -hmm. did tremendous on video and cable. And Life yeah. Force actually was a hit overseas because they got the real version that was 18 minutes longer than ours. Their version made more sense, so surprise, surprise, it did better. And I well, and I can I I like that though that uh what what you were talking about about getting somebody involved in these projects and yeah there's a deal of exclusiveness to them but also it's kind of like what you're saying about Sylvester Stallone with Over the Top they let them make the movie that they want to make you know and I even always even if it's a stupid idea even if it's a stupid idea and I always and I always respect that I always respect a company that will do that uh, that's you know, that's why I have appreciation for the new Hollywood movement. That's why that kind of reminded me of that when you were mentioning that earlier. I've got a lot of respects for I got a lot of respect for companies that that do that, that say like, you know, OK, we're the company that's putting this out. Yes. But, you know, we're not the writers. We're not the directors here. We'll give you we'll let you make the we'll let you make the movie that you want to make. Actually, in the case of Over the Top. Golan directed the movie himself. Stallone well, I, wrote, I wrote it mean, and starred in it, so Golan actually directed that one for Stallone. So, I just mean generally speaking. Yeah, but I mean, how often is the head of the company the director too? Yeah, I mean, what? Well, yeah, you well, find that trauma. There was some, was, wasn't there? Well, well, yeah, there, there's, of course, there's trauma, and yeah, and there was. What was that movie that was in the late '80s? Something that like Harvey Weinstein wrote and directed, or or something. I, I can't remember what it was. But I know which one you're talking about, too, but the title's escaping me at the moment. I know what one you're talking about. It, uh, Mike, Michael that? DeLuca of New Line wrote a bunch of episodes of the Freddy's Nightmares TV series. You don't see that too often, and those were awful. I guess yeah. because he was the head of the company, nobody had the balls to go, Mike, these are terrible. <laughs> but if you're the head of the company, you know, that if you're the writer and you're the head of the company, then <laughs> then yes, certainly can make the movie the, the movie that you want to make. But in the case of like when when they're not, and you know you have a Stallone on over the top, and even what you were saying about Chuck Norris, the Christopher Reeve thing. I mean, okay, yeah, Superman Four was terrible, but you know they gave him that opportunity to make that movie, and you know that's regardless of the final product. I mean, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I, no, none of the majors would have been willing to do that, I don't think. Yeah. I do like that they took chances, and that is great that a company is going to take chances because you do sometimes get good results, and it's better to have tried and failed than not tried at all. Movies today just play it way too safe, which is why it's rare to find something really good and entertaining because nobody's taking chances. And I don't mean American Ninja in the franchise, but they did that. Mm -hmm. Canon was the one responsible for bringing the American-made Ninja movie to America, didn't they? The American-produced Ninja films. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, Enter yeah. Enter yeah. the Ninja, Revenge of the Ninja, Ninja 3. Ninja 3. The, the American Ninja. Or even, and they're not really Ninja, but the Van Damme movies, Bloodsport, Cyborg, Kickboxer. They really <laughs> brought that stuff to America. Oh, yeah, they give us Van Damme. Hell, yeah. Again, three-picture exclusivity contract. Those are great freaking movies. Uh, I, I had issues with Cyborg, and Cyborg was also the last official canon film to be released. I'll, I'll give you Cyborg. Cyborg wasn't very good. Other Van Damme movies on there, oh, yeah, man, Bloodsport, classic. Kickboxer, classic, yes. Kickboxer, hell yeah. But I do like Cyborg. And they also had the last uh, theatrical release of uh, Jeff Stryker. Did they? <laughs> Which one? Was it Street Night, wasn't it? I don't really remember that one. You don't remember Street Night? No. It was the, the Jeff Stryker movie that did worse than The Perfect Weapon. <laughs> <laughs>
Canon was putting out these films and th- they were making a profit when you factor in video and cable. But I then I got just a sec. I need to correct myself. I accidentally said Jeff Stryker, not Jeff Stryker, Jeff Speakman. Jeff Speak. Okay, I'm like, isn't Jeff Stryker the porn not, star? Not, not the, not the, not the porn star and sometimes zombie four actor. Okay, because you threw <laughs> that, me with that. That's why I'm like, I, I do really don't know what was, movie you're talking about. That was a tongue tie. That was a total tongue tie. I just accidentally said Stryker, Jeff Speakman. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's something a lot of people don't realize about Canon. They also produced, quote-unquote, art films. They produced Runaway Train, Shy People. Barbara Hershey won an award for that. They produced Barfly. They They produced Tough Guys Don't Dance for Norman Mailer. They did Bolero. Oh, oh God. Oh, man. Oh, God. Oh, man. (laughs) But, I mean, those really don't... When you say Canon films, do you think of a film like Barfly? No. In fact, I... Complete, I completely forgot that Barfly was even a canon film. And I've seen Barfly a few times. It's just, and Barfly is a fine movie. It's, it's a good movie. It's just not the kind of movie that you automatically think of when you think of, when you think of canon films. I mean, it would be like, ah, it would be like if Troma put out Tree's Lounge. I mean, you know. <laughs> which, which, which goes back to the whole taking chances. They were saying, yeah, we're going to put out Ninja Flicks. Well, we're also going to put out deep character pieces, too. And Barfly's a good movie. It is. I, I haven't seen it since the 90s, but I enjoyed it then. But then all the financial malfeasance and all the, the bad paper started to build on canon, and and then Masters of the Universe happened. The, and then the movie went massively over budget. They yeah. screwed their deal with Mattel because Mattel got way too much creative control over the final product. They were getting crap from where they were shooting. The locations were not allowing a whole lot of cooperation. They had just screwed their deal with Marvel Comics. They tried to make that Spider-Man movie that Ted Newsom wrote. Oh, so yeah. So they had just screwed that deal up, and they were starting all their bad paper was starting to bite them in the ass, and eventually they collapsed after... Masters of the Universe was the last movie they produced as canon, but they still had Cyborg sitting in the can, so that was released after the fact. I was after gonna Canon say, was basically dead, they released Cyborg. How true is it about Cyborg originally being a sequel to Masters of the Universe? What basically happened was, if you remember the end of Masters of the Universe, you know, Skeletor promises he'll be back, and then Masters of the Universe flopped harder than they would have ever thought. And they already had the sets built, they already had pre-production done on the costumes, they already had matte paintings done. They already were, I think they said like $2 million into pre-production on Masters 2. Yeah. So they just decided, we've already got all this stuff. Let's just rewrite this script to use these sets, these costumes, these matte <laughs> paintings. We'll call it Cyborg 2, Messalina, Messalina. <laughs> well, because it, it actually, take do this. Go and watch Masters of the Universe and uh-huh. then go watch Cyborg 1 and 2. You can see the costumes are very similar, and even, <laughs> even even the production design is similar, isn't it? There's a reason. Oh, it's for a little bit of irony. They should have gotten one of the Troll 2 masks. <laughs> <laughs> what is this, Quest for the Mighty Sword? <laughs> yeah. But then, but then after they collapsed, and this was something else that Canon was great at, just hammering movies out. I mean, yeah, you had ones like Life Force that were 120-day shoots. Even today, that's a long shoot, isn't it? Yeah. Then you had other ones like a Death Wish movie. They could hammer out in six weeks. 
Oh yeah, at the fuck, at the freaking most. <laughs> what a, a few of those letters you might have to bleep out. <laughs> <laughs> but but then th- th- that's what they were great at. They they could hammer out a Death Wish film in six weeks and have it in theaters a month later. Let's see a company do that today, Brad. And it makes sense that like Masters of the Universe is the one that flops so much because I don't know about you guys, but I so don't really have the nostalgia for that movie that a lot of people my age do. I don't either. I mean, I was really into it at the time because I liked He-Man, but in retrospect, I I don't like it. I in not for me really not even in retrospect. I mean, I watched He-Man when I was a kid. I like most of us did. Um, I did. I was big into He-Man when I was a kid. I never really cared much for that movie, and then. I've certainly seen the movie since. I mean, Jillian adores the hell out of the movie. So I'll be over at Jillian's place sometime, and I'll be at the computer, and she'll have that movie on and just be watching it, and I'll just kind of turn around and look at a little bit of it and just be like, Jillian, this movie sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I, I can't even really get behind it in a... Flash Gordon kind of way? Flash Gordon, I genuinely feel, is a great freaking movie. I, there's, there's no like, I'm only watching this just for nostalgic purposes for Flash Gordon. I can watch plenty of movies basically for nostalgic purposes and still really, really enjoy myself. Like, I don't sit there watching it, you know, to make myself angry or to be like, oh my god, I was stupid when I was younger. No, no, I, I, admittedly, there's plenty of movies I watch that aren't very good that I just watch because it's something I enjoyed as a kid, and because I enjoyed it as a kid, I enjoy it now. Master of the, Masters of the Universe is not one of those movies. <laughs> well, do you know why it's, it's as different from He-Man as, as it is? Well, they couldn't really do very much in, like, in Eternia, couldn't they? Part of it was budgetary with that, yes. And part of it was what I said, how Mattel had too much creative control. Mattel said, we don't want you to adapt the toys we already have. We need to create new costumes, new characters, new settings, so we can make new toys out of those. Ah. So Canon basically had no choice. They were not able to actually make the He-Man movie everyone wanted. They had to make He-Man the next generation because Mattel wanted to sell toys for those. I know, right? It it always just came across to me as like something that, oh, this just happens to be called a (laughs) He-Man. Or well, hell, it's not even called He-Man. It's called Masters of the Universe. Yeah, but but you know what I mean. Like this is something that just happens to be called Masters of the Universe. This is hardly really anything like this is hardly really anything like the show. Which I mean it could still be fun regardless of that. But that one to me, like, I really didn't get into it when I was a kid. And nowadays I, I don't seek out to watch that movie. I mean if it's if like Jillian has it on and I'm at the computer, I'll frequently I'll look at it and be like, well okay, that's something that existed in the eighties. And I'll kinda <laughs> and I'll kinda laugh, but it's just not it's just not good or really even all that enjoyable to me. In 1987, I was much more interested in seeing RoboCop than I was He-Man. Me too, me too, man. I was way way more into watching RoboCop than I was something like Masters of the Universe, the movie. The show I was still watching, of course, of course then, but in terms of movies, Dear God, yeah, I was way more <laughs> interested in watching something like RoboCop, like The Terminator, like Commando than I was watching something like like Masters of the Universe. 
Uh, and, and, and if we're even going by that fantasy kind of movie, uh, Conan the Barbarian. Yes. When Masters of the Universe came out in theaters, I remember seeing the trailers and not thinking it was a He-Man movie and so not having interest in it. It wasn't until it came out on video and my friends said, it's a movie, it's a He-Man movie, that I was interested in watching it at that point. So Masters of the Universe killed the company. The SEC started to look into them for their financial misgivings, and Glon and Globus went their separate ways, each forming their own production company. Then, oh my God, Brad, I can't believe I got to bring this up. You remember the Lombata craze? <laughs> did they do the Lombata movie? They did both of them. Each <laughs> one did a Lombata movie. They also did Breaking and Breaking Two. Yeah, it but was, that was under canon. It was the Forbidden Dance. I mean, come on. There was the Forbidden Dance and Lombada Set the Night on Fire. Both those movies were shot simultaneously with one another, and they were rivals. And talk about getting a movie out fast. Lombada Set the Night on Fire finished shooting on February 17th. It was in theaters on March 16th. <laughs> well, now they had to shoot them simultaneously because, that, you know, they, they don't want to risk the fat dying before the movie comes out. Well, that and each one wanted to get the movie out before the other one because Glon and Globus were in a pretty bitter battle, even though they're cousins. They were in a pretty bitter battle with one another at that point. So it was, I'm not going to let him get his out first. Well, what about, and, and there was, now the whole Spider-Man thing was like what they had like until what was it, like 1990 and to make the movie or something like that, and then they lose the rights? Like, they had, like, a specific date that a Spider-Man movie, like, had to be made. They and did, only it, unlike the Fantastic Four one, they didn't make this movie. They lost yeah. the rights. Yeah, because yeah. Glon and Globus, if you listen to Ted Newsom's interview on Lost in the Static, both Glon and Globus didn't understand, they didn't know what Spider-Man was. They just <laughs> knew it was popular. They thought, and I swear to God I'm not making this up, they thought Spider-Man was like the Wolf-Man. That it was a guy that gets bit by a spider, and then, like, at night, he turns into a giant spider-man and goes killing on a rampage. Ted Newsom told them otherwise, right? Yeah, Ted Newsom <laughs> told them otherwise, but they were genuinely shocked, like, that's what we bought? I would have been like, if I was, I would have been like, well, that's not Spider-Man, but god damn do I want to see that movie. <laughs> 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 I do too, actually. <laughs> Call it Man Spider. Yeah, Man Spider. But like Ted Newsom said, he's worked for many different large companies in Hollywood. Cannon's the only one that ever had guards with Uzi standing outside Glon and Globus's the president's office. They come from Israel, where you know political climate. Maybe that's just what they were used to. Okay, yeah. He also said that it's the only place where. It actually seemed a little odd and perfect that almost every single office employee there was Jewish. Sure. Well, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I can kind of see. But Glenn and Globus, they, they even released a canon film as late as 1992. Remember the Captain America movie? The I was in one? I was just going to say, wasn't Captain America part of that group? Yeah, it was made in 1990, and yeah. remember, it actually had theatrical trailers when they still thought that that could work. Dude, I remember the poster. I remember seeing the poster in theaters. Uh, the, the, it was the, the big shiny shield. Yeah, the yeah. teaser poster. And then it just quietly was released to home video in 1992. No theatrical release, no sequel that the film's clearly set up for. Nothing. Dude, very quietly, man. I remember being at the video store with my dad, and there were like a couple copies on the shelf. None of them checked out. And uh, there were a couple copies of it on my shelf. My dad picks it up, 
both of us are looking like, wait, didn't we didn't we see a poster for? Th- okay, well, I guess this probably isn't very good. Let's watch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then see, Canon is actually more well remembered today than they were when they were active. They were not looked at well in the Hollywood community. All the major studios looked down on Canon. Stallone even gave an interview in like premiere in the midnight. I think it was when he was promoting Judge Dredd that working for Canon hurt his career because quote unquote real studios. That's how he put it. Real studios didn't want to have anything to do with him after he'd slummed with Canon. Well, that's unfortunate. I mean, you know, the, there's a positive thing though. If there's one positive thing though about internet culture here and basically what we're doing right now is that canon canon continues to live on because we have internet where anybody can talk to anything about any and every single thing that they love so you have a bunch of people like us who are online who have websites dedicated to the movies they talk about the movies you have millions of people on there also talking about them via message boards via movies they can recommend um and then us with our show doing a thing like this and all of that stuff you wouldn't really have found in the 1980s at least like to to the point now where anybody can listen anywhere to us from three different states talking about the history of canon why we like canon and stuff like that and that makes more people talk about canon and that makes more people see the movies too it is going to be something like canon is going to be a lot more well remembered now and more talked about now than it necessarily was in the 1980s well then that being said and i don't disagree with you but that being said do you think there is room today for a new canon that and i'm not talking about the asylum or the sci-fi channel movies i mean the b movies on a budgets where we're gonna throw 25 30 million dollars nationwide release on what's basically an alien ripoff Do you think that could work in today's culture, or was that something that, even if it was ahead of its time in the 80s, is now its time has been passed? I think the problem when a lot of stuff like that happens now is that they're very, very self-aware. They're very, very self-aware. They do a lot of stuff very tongue-in-cheek, and that doesn't usually seem to go over very well with audiences or critics as well people are way way too cynical nowadays to really flock to something that a lot of the canon movies did i think there's there's too much cynicism in movies now to really fully embrace and accept something that canon would do and i think that that's part of why whenever you do get a b movie on a big budget like that it's always very tongue-in-cheek it's always marketed very self-aware which can make you laugh, yeah, but it doesn't necessarily bring an audience, no matter how the final product turns out. And when and the problem is, is when you have when you have companies like the Asylum nowadays that exist, it would be really hard to do something like that nowadays without getting lumped into something like the Asylum. It would be very hard to do that nowadays without it even looking like an Asylum movie. If they were to make something like that now, it would be a lot of really cheap and schlocky CGI, and it would look more low-budget and more cheesy and cheap than the movies then did, than a lot of those movies in the 1980s did. 
I absolutely agree with Brad there that there is too much cynicism that I don't think a company can do away can get away with doing B films on an A budget. That if they did make a B movie on an A budget, they would intentionally make it look poor. They would intentionally try to get a smile out of people by making it look crappy, which is not the same thing. No, it's not. And I I am honestly nostalgic for the balls that they had back then. I don't think there's any movie company that has the balls to pull the kind of stuff Canon did. Consistently, yeah. On a consistent basis, definitely. You certainly... You will still see movies nowadays that, I mean, not nearly as much as then, but occasionally you'll have, you know, the hard R action movie and stuff like that that comes out certainly not consistently like back then. You'd be hard-pressed to find a very mainstream company that would consistently release very adult-oriented B-action movies like Canon did then. Fred Olin Ray is oft accused Canon of trying to buy respectability. And I can't say he's 100% wrong, but at the same time, is it so wrong to want respectability? From what everyone I know who's ever worked for Canon back in the day, they all say Glenn and Globus truly loved film. They really wanted to put out the best thing possible while making a profit. And I'm not trying to disparage Roger Corman, but... Someone like Roger Corman will put out crap if it's the popular crap right now. He's not so high on quality like Glenn and Globus were. You might define quality differently, but do you think that they were trying to buy respectability, or do you think it was just they, being Israeli, they maybe just had a different way of looking at the American film market? I don't think that there's anything wrong. I, I I'm kind of I I really am kind of with you on that because look at something like okay look at something like kickboxer like okay death wish 2 like some of these other movies b movies sure did they have some humor to them yeah but you know what well not all of them but but some of them they because they wanted a little bit of respectability in there too i think that that's good because it still made those movies they were genuine you know they were genuine in their action. They were genuine in their humor, in their drama. They were what they were. They were the genres they were. They were the kinds of movies that they were without talking down to the audience, without without being really wink-wink, nudge-nudge at the camera, without trying to be forced camp. They were genuine about what they were. So I think because of that attitude that they had... They made the style of B-movie there that I prefer over something that's forced camp, that's very tongue-in-cheek, that's very humorous, look at us, we're making a B-movie kind of thing. I absolutely agree. I mean, canon, they were honest in their intentions. They did what they thought was the right thing to do every time. They, That's what they did. Yeah, I couldn't think of a way to finish that sentence. <laughs> well, then, Brad, you brought up their style. You'd, you'd agree that just like Dino De Laurentiis has a style, Canon had a style. Whether you were making Alien from L.A. or Death Wish 2 or Delta Force 5, even if you missed the credits and didn't see that Canon logo, you could watch five minutes of this film and go, my God, this feels like a Canon film, can't yeah. you? Yeah, it's the look of the film, it's the quality of the film, it's different technical aspects to them. 
when you find out that a lot of them are canon films, if you didn't know they were a canon film and you find out, you're not surprised. Which is why I started this episode with saying that a lot of people might not know, oh, canon, great company. But when you look at their filmography, you go, yeah, I actually did grow up watching a lot of these. I didn't yeah. know they were from the same producers. Uh-huh. And you know, a lot of them are, are now getting the respect that they deserve. Canon, like I said, is more respected today. I just got a screener copy of Ninja 3 The Domination on Blu-ray. Nice. Who would have ever thought Ninja 3 The Domination would get uh-huh. a special edition Blu-ray, Brad? You also got Life Force. I got Life Force as well. That, that Another Canon one. So I think Canon was a great company who maybe because, like you guys both pointed out, the cynicism of the time today, maybe they died when they needed to die. I'm not. I really can't tell if if they died when they needed to or not. Regardless of when it was better, when they died or when they didn't die, regardless of that, they were around in the right time for those kind of movies. They were around in the perfect time for those. And in all honesty, think about what came after Canon. And I don't mean from Glenn and Globus's production companies. I think they set a new standard because before them you would have never seen something like like the revenge flicks that came out in the early 2000s and that. Those would have never been theatrical flicks. I think Canon primed primed the audience for having that kind of national nationwide release. They certainly did make it easier to profit off a B movie. Is it really a B movie then when you're throwing 30 million dollars after it? The intent. Uh, yeah, the intent, the feel, the yeah, the kind of audience that you're kind of going for, really. The attitude, you know, that, that, that certainly has the qualities, at least, of a B-movie. Do you think canon, for people who are, say, 25 and under, because, you know, like that whole Chuck Norris meme started, and in all honesty, a lot of the Chuck Norris facts thing come from his canon years. Do you think that, that canon is seen by the modern audience who didn't grow up with them? as the joke, like the Chuck Norris facts? Or do you think they can look at a movie like Invasion USA and go, you know what, I can look at this in, in its 1985 time slot and go, this was pretty decent for 1985, even if today it comes off overly jingoistic and kind of dumb. Oh, I, I think that there's plenty of young people who do. I, I meet them all the time. You know, people comment on my site when we're at conventions i had i mean this well this isn't a canon film but i was at a convention one time and a nine-year-old kid asked me to sign his vhs of friday the 13th part five you know there's there are yeah there are plenty of young people who really do get into these movies non-ironically non-douchey hipster like that really get into these movies the same way that we did when when we grew up with them, and you have to figure that that that's because they probably have parents like like us. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> they made good movies. You know what I thought of after we started recording this? Okay, because they had the exclusivity contracts with Norris and Stallone and stuff like that, and and they basically discovered for America Van Dam. Do you think if they were still around in 1990 that they would have been who Seagal went to? <laughs> uh, Am I wrong in that assertion? It's, no, it's it's certainly a possibility. It's it certainly is. Yeah, he would have fit perfect into canon, wouldn't he? Oh, he would have. 
Yeah, he would have. Especially the early ones. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm just kind of thinking, okay, Van Damme and Seagal always had that rivalry. Wouldn't it have been cool if they were both working for the same company? Then we really yeah. could have had them in the same flick. We could have gotten Jeff Stryker to do action <laughs> movies. <laughs> you just really love Jeff Stryker, don't you? <laughs> well, that was the other thing about canon. They really, really thought that the that the kung fu ninja action movie thing, they thought they could make an action star out of anybody after Van Damme hit. I and kinda... people like Jeff Speakman really proved that you couldn't, huh? Yeah, it's like, oh, uh, we can't have an action hero who looks like a younger version of the dad from 16 Candles. Or Lorenzo Lamas. They, they made hey, a couple like, with him, you know? I like, I like, well, Lorenzo's had a lot more lasting power than Jeff Speakman. Uh, <laughs> That's only because Renegade being the most 90s TV series ever. I kind of like Lorenzo Lamas. But, like, uh, I, I kind of like Lamas, all right. I like him better than Speakman. But I do kind of miss, though, that era of the, uh, the the practice action hero that was like, well, these other guys kind of came out of nowhere and became relatively successful. Let's try that with, uh, okay, Speakman, Lamas, Brian Bosworth. Let's have the, the practice action heroes and see if they take off. Canon also can't be overlooked for its comedies, too. Oh, Last American Virgin, which is half a comedy. Well, and then a, one of your favorite films ever, and I'm not sure if it was meant as a comedy because I haven't seen it since I was a kid, The Apple. Oh, The Apple. Oh, God. <laughs> That's not one of my favorite movies. I know, that was, was sarcasm, Brad. <laughs> but, I mean, they also had hot t-shirts. They had the, the first three happy hooker goes to, insert town, going bananas, remember that? Doing time on planet Earth. Bolero <laughs> is intentionally hilarious. <laughs> well, and as Alex pointed out, the Breakin movies talk about trying to grab a trend. Yeah. Hey, people so. still reference those movies to this day, only for the subtitle Electric Boogaloo. That, yeah, that that was, I don't think even in 86 that was probably a good subtitle. I really don't. I think that was just poorly thought out. But just like the Lombada movies, they were trying to hit hit a fad before it unfatted. So, I mean, those were rushed out. Those two movies were shot almost back-to-back. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, final thoughts on canon, Brad? Final thoughts? Uh, I don't know if I could give a final thought without repeating myself. Uh, They're movies that I grew up with watching. I enjoyed them back then. I still watch them, have them on tape. I still enjoy them to this day for the exact same reasons that I enjoyed them when I was a kid. I still enjoy canon, and I will watch canon movies whenever I come across them. They'll always be remembered. There's supposedly a big canon documentary coming out that yeah, I, 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 I hope that. really, really pays pays them the the due that that you know they've had coming for a long time. I'm and with you on that because canon is awesome. So guys, mm. go out and rent some Chuck, pretty much any Chuck Norris or Charles Bronson movie from the '80s. It's most likely canon. Go out mm. and rent a couple of them. Where can we find Brad Electric Boogaloo Jones? Thecinemasnob.com. <laughs> uh, Where can we find Alex Deadpan Alien from L.A. Jowski? At geekjuicemedia.com. And you can find me, insert whatever weird insulting surtitle you want here, Hadley. You can find at 1201beyond.com, 1201beyond at gmail.com. Have a good night, guys.
1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.